Hello out there, and thank you for joining me. I'm Dan Roberts, and this is One More Think. And today I am joined by Dr. Amy Dreyer, PhD of clinical psychology, who has uh, graciously agreed to join us today, talk a little bit about her pathway, her arc into the field of psychotherapy, and some of the lessons she learned along the way. So without any further ado, I introduce to you Dr. Amy Dreyer. Thanks for coming out, Amy. No problem. I'm excited to be here. Is uh, is this your first podcast interview? It is. I have not done this before. This is going to be the first of many. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, ma'am. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it. <laughs> I mean, so, I have dreamed of podcast stardom, so. <laughs> well, welcome. You have okay. arrived. All right. This this podcast is listened to by at least five people. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> so no, thanks for joining me. Um, let's uh, start off with something like an introduction, right? So right. I've wanted to do a series of kind of profiles in psychotherapy for a while now, ever since yeah. I started my podcast, which was months ago. Yeah. And you're the first interview I'm doing on that series or to, or to turn that idea into a reality. Cool. So I want to interview, you know, the end, uh, the end uh, goal is to interview a lot of people from a lot of different niches mm -hmm. in, uh, in the field. Mm -hmm. And the main, I guess the main mission behind that is to demystify what therapy is yeah. versus what it isn't. There's a lot of people who seem to be hanging up a shingle and claiming that they can offer life advice, but really the only thing that qualifies them for that is that they are alive. Yeah. Um, and, and then you've got other people like yourself and myself who've gone to years and years of, ex, uh, of training and have years and years of experience and licensure. Mm -hmm. So I'm just trying to kind of put it out there, who, what a therapist actually is, who we cool. actually are, and what we really do. So okay. to that end, I guess my first question for you is how did Amy Dreyer come about being a therapist, getting a, a PhD in psychology? Why don't you give us a little bit of your, your bona fides and kind of the, the path you took okay. into being a therapist? Okay. Um, gosh, I'm going to take you in the way back machine. Um, I was one of those people that um, kind of knew I wanted to do this from adolescence. And I think the seed got planted in me uh, by my mom and dad who reflected one day, um, wow, you spend a lot of time on the phone talking with your friends about all their problems. It seems like you're <laughs> the therapist of your group. <laughs> and I was like, huh, that's an interesting thought. Um, and I, I realized I, I just find, I found people and I still do uh, fascinating. And I just got that therapist idea in my head and that's what kind of set me on my academic path once I left high school. So I majored in psychology in college. I went to Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, um, which for a small state school, I got a fantastic education um, while nice. also being able to ski and hike and do all those amazing Colorado things. Um, and while I was at Fort Lewis, um, I had a professor who um, had a very 
strong background in forensic psychology and I got I got really into uh, forensics and kind of had the goal along with every other person um, that I wanted to be in the FBI and be a profiler, hmm. which, um, you know, turns out like there's 1% of people that try to do that job that actually get it. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, after undergrad, uh, went to University of Denver um, and got my master's in, in forensic psychology. Um, at which point I kind of, sh- once I realized the reality of, you know, becoming, you know, an agent in the behavioral science unit, uh, probably wasn't going to happen. Um, I ended up shifting to being really interested in, um, like offending behavior and, um, rehabilitation. And so I, I worked, um, while I was getting my master's and then, post-masters for a couple years um, doing evaluation and treatment with adult male sex offenders. Oh, wow. Which, like in, in the corrections? In, yep. Um, so they, all the, I worked out of uh, DOC. So I was working with people on probation and parole. Um, but when I was doing evaluations, those were pre-sentence post-conviction evaluations. So I spent a lot of time in jail talking to people, um, <laughs> doing assessments and, and clinical interviews in jail, and then um, essentially kind of making um, assessments about recidivism risk or reoffense risk uh, to help a, inform a judge's decision about sentencing. So spent a few years doing that. Um, as, as I'm sure you can imagine, that is a can be a quick road to burnout. Um, yeah, and imagine. yeah, quickly realized that um, I, I got too specialized a little too quickly. Um, so I'd always known I wanted to go back and get my doctorate. And I decided um, that I wanted to go back and get a more general um, doctoral degree. So I went to UNC in Greeley um, and did my PhD in counseling psychology. Um, and it was during that time that, uh, because of, I think it was because of my, you know, forensic background obviously had a lot to do with trauma. Um, and I, I was still interested in trauma and working with people who had experienced and I kind of naturally found myself being drawn to the military. So, uh, when it came time for internship, I applied to do my internship in the air force. Um, on active duty, and I matched at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, and that's where I went and spent a year there and then three years uh, post-internship um, on active duty at Cannon Air Force Base, um, shifted to the VA, um, worked at the VA for six years, and uh, recently, just about a year ago, got the opportunity to transition back to academia and am now at the uh, University of Colorado School of Medicine uh, in their Department of Psychiatry, uh, helping train baby docs how to do psychotherapy. All right. And so it all, we, 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 we all come back to the nest, right? I think there's, I don't, I don't imagine there's many psychotherapists who don't entertain, at least in the back of their head, the idea of going back to college and taking totally. a professorship role. Totally. Yep. So that's that's an interesting arc. Starting off in forensics, um, going through treating sex offenders, and mm-hmm. then 
going through military service, active duty, being a so, so you were a psychologist in the Air Force, right? I was. Now that I'm was your that was your official three. duty. Yes, sir. Okay. And then coming through to the VA, working with veterans, and then kind of ejecting that orbit and going out into the bigger world uh, yeah. or, or smaller world of academia. I guess it depends on it's perspective. probably a little of both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so full disclosure, Amy and I worked together at the VA in yep. uh, the post-traumatic stress disorders clinical team. And Amy, you had a specific secondary role, right? You were a military sexual trauma specialist or what's, what's the actual title? It, I hate the title. Actually, it's military sexual trauma coordinator. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've never right. thought about it that way, but you yeah, that's have thought that through. not um, something you want to coordinate. Right. Uh, <laughs> I always, I always thought of it should maybe be the military trauma treatment coordinator, but it wasn't. So I was the MST coordinator. <laughs> so is that, was that a position that you sought out? Was that a voluntary thing or was it a need that just you filled because it was open? How'd you end up in that specific uh, assignment? Um, it, it's a, a kind of a circuitous path to it. So I started out, out in the general clinic and I think it was because of my military background and officership and leadership training. I quickly found myself kind of being sucked up into leadership um, and eventually ended up as the section chief for the primary mental health section, um, overseeing basically all of the outpatient services. Um, then the pandemic started and obviously that ramped up a lot. Of and um, I had been realizing that um, one of the reasons I didn't stay in the Air Force was I couldn't see myself being a um, squadron commander and not being a psychologist anymore. And I had this reflection that I was essentially a squadron commander, and not a psychologist anymore. And so I started looking for other opportunities and kind of wanting to get back to my roots, particularly as a trauma um, treatment provider. And the opportunity came up, the MST coordinator left, it was an opening, um, and so I threw my hat in the ring and thankfully um, was able to transition back to that clinical world. So you worked with sex offenders before you joined yep. the military and then you ended up working <laughs> around the concept of sexual offenses or sexual violence yep. after. Is yep. that is that by design? Is there a fascination there or a, a, a strong professional interest or is that just kind of the way the forest gump wind blew you in the in the field you know it it was it was probably more um more the way the forest gump wind blew me i, I you know I, when i looked at my opportunities for field placements while i was getting my master's degree uh, i just thought hey that sounds kind of interesting and so that's what i did um and it was interesting and I learned a lot, a lot more than maybe I want to know. Um, <laughs> um, and, and then once you get into working with trauma and you realize how widespread, you know, sexual trauma is in no matter who you're working with, you don't really get away from it. And so I think, um, you know, even in the general clinic, you know, in the air force, obviously I was working with people who had experienced, some type of sexual trauma pretty frequently. And so um, I think when that opportunity came up to be the MST coordinator, I, I kind of felt uniquely qualified for it. 
um, given my my clinical training, but also just, you know, sort of various experiences I had had through my career. Uh, so it felt like a good fit, I guess. Good. I mean, I something similar happened to me much earlier in my career when I was still on the psych tech level, mm-hmm. but I got a job at a, at a inpatient facility for court mandated youth. Ah, yeah. Um, and most of them weren't purely um, psychiatrically hospitalized. This was a, you know, kind of a, essentially a, a treatment facility for juvenile delinquents, yeah. which is a, a, which is a passe terminology. Right. But, there were three branches. There were literally three wings in this hospital. I worked on the girls' wing. Um, occasionally, would have to cover down the boys' wing, and then there was a third wing that was specifically for child sex offenders. Uh huh. And when I first started working there, I had this, I think, probably instinctual revulsion against that wing. There was just like, oh, I don't want to work there. Yeah. In, in air quotes. Yeah. Until I until I had to and. I covered somebody's shift and worked over on their wing and a lot of my stigmas and a lot of my assumptions were instantly challenged yeah. and I found myself pulled towards working with that population yeah. in part, I think, because of the revulsion, Yeah. right? It's just so wrong. Right. There's part of you that wants to understand it. It's that it's that mysterious, yeah. like, what is going on there? How do you get to that point? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I can really relate to that. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's a lot of people who come into our field who take a look at all of these poten- potential branches where you can work, right? If mm-hmm. it's forensics, if it's corrections, if it's sex offense, if it's... You know, all of these things, these heavy parts of the human experience that I don't think anybody wants to wade into. Like, you know, I don't, I don't imagine many people grow up as a, as a five-year-old thinking when I grow up, I want to work with rapists. Yeah, Um, exactly. And yet you find yourself there. um, Like a friend of mine, when he was going through med school, did, um, did a gynecology rotation. Uh-huh. And again, he was like, you know, this is not the thing that you that you grow up thinking you want to do. But he was doing the gynecology rotation in med school and found himself completely fascinated by it. Yeah, yeah. And he was he was leaning very heavily into becoming uh, a gynecologist, but then he matched with his second preference, which I want to say was uh, ER medicine. So I think he became an ER surgeon. Okay. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's always interesting how the wind blows you and professionally right. and yeah. and how you can sometimes land so far away from the original thing you wanted to do. Uh-huh. And yet, I mean, was that your experience? Did you did you find a greater sense of meaning or belonging in this surprise place that you landed or did it always feel like just kind of a a, a transitionary like transitory place you were just going through to get to some other place? You know, I I really, I really felt like part of a very close knit team there. And I think that, you know, helped me feel like what we were doing was really important and that made it, and what we were doing was really important, I think still, but um, that, that made it feel less transitory to me. But I also at the same time knew that, I wanted to go on and do get my doctorate and do something else. And so I went into it knowing that that was not going to be my 
last job in my career. Right. I think it's also important for people who know her just considering the field of psychology or the field of uh, psychotherapy that you don't get stuck yeah. in, in any one thing. No. There's, an, there's a lot of mobility. And if, yes. if you're working with couples for 10 years and you burn out on that, the, yep. the, trans, the transition into a completely different subfield is not only possible, it's very common. Yeah. And it's not that hard. Like I think about, I was working in such a specialty niche area right out of master's at what, 24 years old, which uh, people would look at me as a 24 year old young woman and be like, you're doing what? (laughs) (laughs) Which was kind of fun. Actually, I got a little bit of a kick out of that. Um, But the things even though that was such a specialty niche field, the things I learned there and learned like trial by fire um, are some of the really strong foundations of the skills that I'm able to use with clients today, you know? And so it's translatable. It doesn't, you can be in a really specialty field, but you're getting all these amazing translatable skills that then it's not so hard to make the jump to something that seemingly completely different, but really isn't because humans are everywhere. Right. Um, we have taken over the planet like a parasite. We have. Yeah, we? yeah, yeah. Very successfully. <laughs> um, but I, I love that about the field. <clears throat> I'm yeah. right there with you. Yep. If you're doing trauma work, some yep. of the trauma that you'll see will be sexual in nature. Absolutely. If you're working with couples, some of the couples you're working with will be undergoing trauma. Yep. If you're working with people who are depressed, some of the people who are depressed will be having couples problems. Exactly. Um, there is no way, I think, to find a population in humanity that is immune right. from any of the subset problems right. that plague us as yeah. a species. Exactly. And I, I think I've talked with some um, would-be therapists or early therapists who get so kind of like they get this deer in the headlights effect. They're like, I'm not sure what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, know, I know I like people and I want to be a therapist, but ugh, do I want to work with, you know, depressed housewives for the rest of my life? Do I want to work with hardened criminals, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think your story is illustrative, as is mine, that when you're really in the field, you're not going to work with any population forever unless you no. want to. Right, right. Yeah. And, and if you want to, that's great. I think that's you know, I know some people in my career that have done that, but it's definitely a minority. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I, I can only think of one or two purists yeah. off the me top too. of my head. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. So let me ask you this as a, as a seasoned therapist, right? What do you love about the profession? What's your favorite thing about being a psychotherapist? Ah, uh, well, I'm going to go back to my, you know, 15, 16 year old self. And I still think people are fascinating. Um, I like meeting somebody and hearing their story and providing kind of a, just a, just that non-judgmental ear for somebody to tell their story to, and then help them figure themselves out. I like that. Um, I, that, that jazzes me a little bit. I like, as a psychologist, I love assessment. 
for the same reason, right? Like I really get to dig into somebody and help them understand themselves better. Um, and that, that's rewarding. I love that. Awesome. So what do you hate <laughs> the most about it? <laughs> <laughs> Administrative BS uh. is what I hate the most about it. Um, clinically, I would say um, what I hate the most at it, about it is when you're working with somebody and you just, feel like you're not up to the challenge. There's, there's something about it that is, you're not making progress or you, you know, you feel like you're just spinning in circles and um, like, you're just not doing a good job for that person. That's a sucky feeling. Yeah. So how long have you been doing this in years? Mm, um, post masters. Uh, I graduated in 2006. So eight, 16 years, 16 years. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't trying to trigger an existential crisis, but. No, right? <laughs> let's, let's dig into that. How does that make you feel, Amy? Um, <laughs> uh, but I think it's fascinating. And I've talked with lots of different therapists about this. I don't know that any of us ever get beyond that, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, I will feel like I've crushed it. Like I've yeah. just knocked it out of the park and I've really yeah. connected with somebody and I've peeled back some of the rusty old hinges and I've got their mind functioning better and they're awesome, right? Yeah. And I think probably on a one-for-one -one split, there are the yeah. people where I'm like, I... I don't even know what to do with this guy. I see, I see the name on my calendar and I'm like, Oh, yeah. oh this guy again. Why is it Thursday again? Uh, oh, yep. hundred percent. I, when you right? said that, I like feel it in my gut. <laughs> I don't know that feeling. And I honestly believe that those cases are the ones where I have to be a professional and the other ones are easy. It yeah. is so easy to hit a home run and run the bases. Yeah. It's very hard to run the bases when you have bunted to the pitcher's mound. Yeah. And you gotta and you gotta work your butt off yes. to get anything done at all. And That's a great metaphor. And I, I think that I, I find myself bunting to the pitcher's mound quite often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Me too. And, and and it's I don't know. I think there's something probably refreshing and a learning moment for senior therapists to recognize that uh, I've heard it referred to as imposter syndrome, right? Maybe. You're supposed to be the expert. You're supposed yeah. to have all the answers or yeah. know how to do everything. And then you've got that person sitting across from you and nothing's working for them. Yeah. And I've... you're pulling out whatever hair you have left yeah. to try to figure out what you need to do differently to connect or to be worthwhile. Totally. Have you ever had the experience where you thought you were completely whiffing with somebody and then they turn around and like tell you they've changed their, that you've changed their life. Yeah, I have. I, I, I know I have because I can, I can really relate to how that felt when I was like, Oh wait, what? You know? <laughs> um, but like actual people aren't even coming to mind when I think about that. So yeah. I, it's, it's just like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> I, I had a I had a client that I just graduated from uh, cognitive processing therapy today, who 
he did his homework and he did the assignments and he was engaged, but I never really felt like it clicked. Yeah. And then just today at our, in our final session, yeah. he opened up in a way he hadn't opened up the entire time. It was just effusive about how much this had helped and how much his life was better. And thank you so much. And brilliant. And I, I was honestly like, okay, where are you at, Ashton Kutcher? Like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm being, I'm being punked by this guy right minute. now. But yeah, I hate that feeling too. Yeah, um, terrible. And I kind of love that it happens so often because I think it keeps me on my toes and keeps yeah. stops me from getting complacent. Totally, um, absolutely. I think too. The other thing is, you know, you mentioned imposter syndrome, and it. I still have that. <laughs> I still have that when I'm in a room with a bunch of really smart professionals. And this was the case on the PCT. And this is the case in my current setting where, uh, where I'm working that everybody is way smarter than me and they're way better therapists than I'll ever be. <laughs> but I think that's a good thing too. Like it, it feels crappy. I think when you're new, but now I'm like, it, it it helps drive me. It helps it helps me recognize like it doesn't matter how long I've been doing this. There's still stuff I can learn from every other therapist I run into. Um, and when then when I'm sitting across from a person, I'm thinking to myself, I remember when Christina said she used X type of statement with somebody with a similar situation. Maybe I can do that. You know. Nice. And that's. That's pretty cool. But, the you know, in the moment, the imposter syndrome, when someone says something on a case and you're like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> it's, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I, I Again, I think it, it's probably one of the things that keeps us honest and yeah, grounded. Sure. But I think our field is particularly prone to it uh -huh. because we almost never watch each other work. Right. You know, if if you're working with a team of engineers building a rocket, yeah, you don't build the rocket all by yourself right. and then and then present it at launch day, right? <laughs> all of the engineers are working on the same blueprints and exchanging right. ideas, and there's a there's a constant flow mm -hmm. of information. But therapy is this weird outlier where, by the nature of what we're doing, it's almost always very private. Yeah, and I know when I was first starting out in the field. The idea, I mean, when I got through training and I wasn't being actively observed by professors and instructors right. who were trying to teach me how to not be terrible. Right, exactly. When I was beyond that phase and launched as an independent, private, uh, independent licensed professional, um, I almost never got observed. No. Unless you're co-facilitating a group. Right. But then you're co-facilitating, right? And you yeah. kind of take turns and it's more right. of a it's more of a tag team approach, not somebody else watching you work. Exactly. And man, it's a lonely place. And yeah. I don't think I was ready for it. Um, when I first started out, I don't think I was ready to be that independent. Yeah. And to sink or swim. And if yeah. you sink, you're gonna be drowned and at the bottom of the ocean before anybody knows you were struggling. Like it's 100%. you're you're gonna be way yeah. under. Yep. And uh, I think I had, a, I had a great mentor, one of my first uh, clinic commanders in the military, um, who started a practice with me where I had to staff cases with him mm -hmm. once a week. He would just pull me and be like, talk me through a case. Mm -hmm. 
And his questions were pointed and detailed and he yeah. drilled me yeah. so that, so that I felt like, okay, I'm actually reporting to this guy because, yeah. and he, I, I think he kept me afloat. He was a psychiatrist and he was doing to me what was done for him right. in med school. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I haven't had that since and no. still, you know, 20 years into my career as I am, um, I, I, I think I would benefit from a little direct observation, but you don't yeah. get it. No. No. No, it's funny. We just started because the residents in our clinic have never had the opportunity. I'm going to say this. Yeah, they've never had the opportunity to mm -hmm. be observed doing psychotherapy, which blows my mind, but that's a whole other topic. Um, and so we figured out a process that they're able to record their sessions now. Um, nice. Since they're doing them over Zoom, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, and then they bring them to, to the multidisciplinary team and they will show clips from their sessions and they'll get feedback from, you know, their fellow residents and the therapists. And some of the therapists have started doing the same thing and being like, I want that. I need oh, that. Yeah. And it's been so cool to be able to see other licensed independent providers practicing their craft and, and it's. I think I've picked up on a lot of things that way. I haven't been brave enough to take myself there yet, <laughs> but I know I need to. Um, I think it would be so helpful because you're right. We, it, once you're done with training and you are fully qualified and heavy air quotes. Um, yeah. Your practice is so lonely. Yeah. And when I was a supervisor, I started calling it the cuckoo clock, right? Yeah. I would be, you know, in the hallway doing whatever supervisors do. And at the top of the hour, all the doors would open. The therapists would poke their heads out. They'd be out there for a few seconds. Yep. They'd go back into their door, into their offices. The doors yeah. would close. Oh my gosh, that's and, great. And nothing else would happen for a solid hour. But yep. it was the weirdest thing. Because as an army officer and a medical officer, I'd go downstairs and see how the docs were working. Yep. And the PAs would have a nurse and two uh, technicians helping them with every patient. And yeah. they were a team. And yeah. there was a team vibe to it, yeah. which which came with team stress and all of the team things. Sure. But nobody was working in a bubble. No. And they but often th had like, if, it, if the clinic was anything like ours at Canon was, they, they often had like bullpens where their computers were, right? It wasn't, yeah. They yeah. didn't even have like their office where they went and shut themselves in. They They were doing like which they probably were jealous of us in a lot of ways. But, <laughs> but it's that constant kind of collaboration that's happening that you just you just don't have in our type of setting. Exactly. And and I would come back up to my clinic and it would be like a ghost town. Yeah. Until five minutes before the yeah. hour or five minutes after. Exactly. And it was and then there was just constant, you know, foot traffic and people going to get their clients and clients coming back. Running to the bathroom. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and I had a commander once who who pulled me aside and said, Why do we have so much drama from the behavioral health folks? Why do the behavioral health folks have such a hard time getting along with each other or solving their problems or oh. whatever? And I suggested that to her, that maybe that's the reason. We yeah. never see each other except for one time a week during staff meeting. Yeah. And there's an agenda. Yep. But all of these other teams, they've hashed out their personal differences in the squish time between patients when they're breathing each other's oxygen. Yeah. We don't have that. 
Nope. Right. And, and, you know, for better or worse, like I, I love my private office. I'm not going to give that up for anybody. I don't want to write notes with somebody else, you know, chewing, chewing on Doritos in my ear. That's, yeah. I don't need that. Ew, people. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny coming from somebody who finds people fascinating. So much so that. Introvert. Do you do you know any extroverted psychologists? Like Not truly many. truly extroverted psychologists? Maybe a couple. Hmm. Um one of one of my current coworkers who was our coworker at the VA. Um she's truly an extrovert. Um but most of us I think at least um are those people that the introverts that can act like extroverts. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I I call us mesoverts. That's oh, my mesovert. That's my phrase for it, right? Okay, so I like that. you can rise to the surface and so so my the metaphor that I have for mesoverts is like dolphins. Yes. We're cre- we're creatures of the sea. We love the sea, we're experts at the sea. We love being below the surface, but every once in a while just for fun, we will frolic on the surface. Yeah. Right? <laughs> But that's an alien place for us. We're good there. We can do some yeah. impressive stuff. We can, yeah. you know, balance on our tails and do backflips. We're good above the surface. Yeah. But that's not where we live. That's right. Right. I think. Yeah. I think. I think a true like introvert is, you know, like a, I don't know, some deep sea fish that never wants to come up and would only come up if they right. were dragged, kicking and yeah. screaming. Yeah, those ones that like don't even have eyes because it's so dark down there. <laughs> the the anglerfish, those terrifying <laughs> monsters with the <laughs> yeah, that's what the introverts are. That's exactly yeah. what, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm trying to say. For getting ready to come after us. All right, send your emails to amy.dryer at <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, I think that's I think a, a truly extroverted psychologist is probably prone to burnout because they're so they they seek more contact than they can truly benefit from. Right. Right. Would would you go with me that so far as to say that? Yeah. Yeah, Because I know, well, and maybe it's just the introvert. Like I know after a day, particularly, you know, when you're in a fully clinical position, so you're seeing, you know, five, six patients a day, depending on your setting, you might be seeing more than that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I come home from that, like, I don't, I don't want to talk to people. (laughs) Um, I'm talked out and I, I can't imagine like a true extrovert, like still needing more contact with people. (laughs) Oh man. The idea of coming home from a day of therapy and then going to hang out with people at a party. Oh, my word. Kill me. Yeah, 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 please. On the other hand, going coming home from work and going for a nice long walk by myself yep. or watching a movie yep. or right, that's that's yep. ideal, right? This ideal. is these are people who don't require any answers or responses. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I uh I I I think that's one of my favorite things about our field is that we love people when they go away. To a, yeah, exactly. Right. We love people in certain circumstances. <laughs> and, and for me, I don't know, maybe you can relate to this, but for me, one of the most important things is I do not like small talk much nope. at all. Like no. the, that 
stuff you just have to force yourself to talk yeah. about and get to yeah. know somebody and ask yeah. questions that you don't really want answers to. Yeah. I find that deeply aversive. Yeah. But I love meaningful conversation. Yeah. So being a therapist is right on that point. It's yeah. meaningful conversation. We cut through the fluff in the first five minutes. And after that, we're talking about real stuff. Yeah. So that the conversation was worth the effort. It wasn't just an exercise in, you know, moving my lips and tongue. It was uh -huh. yep. real information, real knowledge, real discovery. But you can't get that from just casual interaction, yeah, which is why right. I think casual interaction is so boring most yeah. of the time. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I feel that 100%. Oh, I'm, I'm probably more tired after like an equivalent amount of time doing kind of average socializing than I am having done psychotherapy. Oh, I, I could do therapy for a solid eight hours back to back and feel less drained yeah. than I would after going to a party for three yep. hours. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, especially if it's a party full of strangers, just, right. oh my word. Yeah. Hanging out with friends, different story. Yeah. But yeah, if it's like a, a mandatory fun sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's so funny that so many of us, you're, you, yourself, myself, are inherently, like, I'll just use my own phrase, mesoverts. Yeah. At that level. That's yep. quite wonderful. And one of those ironies, I wonder how many doctors there are that, uh, that find people disgusting um, or, or, or how many, how many lawyers there are that really hate court or, you know, right. um, exactly. <laughs> uh, I wonder, yeah. or like, you know, I, that's like an architect that hates to draw. Yeah, exactly. Like, ah, I can draw at work, but man, I hate drawing in my personal I know. Time. You know, I love being an accountant, but I really hate math. <laughs> <laughs> So, so let me ask you this. I've, uh, I, I, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people in the field. Okay. As a field, I realize this is a huge question, but as a field, what are we doing wrong? Wow, it is a huge question. And I'm having, I'm being flooded with a lot of different like ideas right now, which I was probably saying something. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think what we do wrong is we, we don't give people a clear picture of what psychotherapy can and should be. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's our responsibility. And, and I don't know really what the answer is to how to do that, but there's, there's such persistent, strong um, misunderstandings of what psychotherapy really is. And I think a lot of that is probably perpetuated by those folks that you mentioned earlier that get the kind of minimum qualifications they need, hang up a shingle, and then are essentially a rent-a-friend. Right. Um, that aren't really doing those science-backed, evidence-based interventions that help people get better and no longer need us. And I think that really should be what we're selling people is my job is to help you not need me anymore. Right. 
Um, now, obviously, there are people with certain conditions that, you know, long-term therapy is appropriate for them. And I don't mean to, you know, dismiss that. But for the majority of the population, um, it's, it's, it's like we, we could do a better job with saying, like, when, when you go see a certain medical specialist, you stop seeing them when the, when the problem is taken care of. You don't just kind of continue to see them. You don't right. need to. And that's what therapy can be like. You can go in, you can get to work, you can get the help you need, and you can get back out and get on with your life. And I don't think we do enough, a, a good enough job of that. Um, I'm not, like I said, I don't know what the answer is. But somebody should start a podcast about that. Somebody should start a podcast about that. Hmm. Do you know anybody? Um, I'll, I'll have to ask around. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I, you're, you're, you're reading my mind, Amy. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've felt this exact same thing about the field for a long time. I think we've been hamstrung by our own legacy, all of the yes. Freudian garbage. Yep. I mean, yes. you know, apologies uh, to any psychodynamists who are listening, who might be offended, but that's garbage. Mm -hmm. Um, it just doesn't work. And, you know, like, like you talked about these people who are doing things that don't work or at least haven't been proven to work. Exactly. But their clients come back for years and years. Like you would come back to your drug dealer on the side right. of the street. Like I need my fix. It's not going to make anything better. I'm going to feel better for a time right. and I'll see, and I'll see you next week on Wednesday. Watch her and repeat for 15 years. Yeah, Exactly. Um, I, I feel like it's almost criminal. That moment, I was just about to say, I right? think it's thievery. Yeah. And real therapy, as you already mentioned, changes things. Yeah. And I, I often make this, make this equation even uh, in session with clients. Real therapy, psychotherapy should be like physical therapy. Exactly. You should increase your right. flexibility, your mobility, your utility of whatever got hurt. Yeah. And it should happen quickly. And by the time you're done, you should know how to do all these exercises by yourself yep. so you don't need to come in anymore. 100%. That's it. Right? But you can't – I mean, I had when I had surgery on my shoulder, I couldn't learn all of those exercises by myself. By yourself. A, because I didn't know my physiology enough to know what exercises to do without hurting myself. And B, because it all hurt and I would just have rather not done any of it. Exactly. Right. Right. And, I, and, yeah. and a good therapist does exactly both of those things. Exactly. They have the insight to know what you need to work on, what you yeah. need to flex to increase your mobility. And we are all sadistic enough to make people hurt acutely in a useful way. In the service of recovery. Exactly. Right. Yep. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's absolutely that. I'm so on that page that there's this legacy of unhelpful help. Yep that has been out there for so long that people maybe rightly have an aversion to. Yeah. What do you think about the, for me, in my experience, it's been universal. I've never seen a, a therapy practice that doesn't have this, but maybe you have. So maybe you can tell me what it's like in the promised land. But what do you, what do you think about the fact that almost all therapeutic practices are shoehorned into the medical model, both yeah. in terms of, of billing in terms of scheduling and documentation. What's your, what's your take on that particular element? Because it's one of my favorite axes to grind. I, I, I haven't seen it either. So, you know, if you get to the promised land first, please let me know. 
Um, I'll send up a flare. Yeah. It's just, it's inherently a bad fit. What we do is not like medicine. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't fit on the same scheduling system. It doesn't fit for the same billing system, right? Like it doesn't fit for the same caseloads or the flow through clinics or all of that. Right. And honestly, I think trying to shoehorn it in has gotten us into this position where we have incredibly limited access for people to actually get in to see somebody for the treatment they need. Um, and it's just created this, you know, dearth of resources for people because we can't practice in the way that makes sense for our profession. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. With, with that in mind, right. All of those problems, notwithstanding, <laughs> what do you feel like we get right as therapists? What do we do excellently? I think what we get right, no matter what you're practicing, and obviously there's exceptions to this rule because, again, humans everywhere, but um, we get empathy right. Mm. We get we get non-judgmental, unconditional positive regard right. And that doesn't mean, you know, always conveying, uh, Carl Rogers would not be happy with me, but always conveying that we think everything our clients do is wonderful, but (laughs) we can challenge that in an empathic way that people can hear. And we can, we can provide them that level of acceptance and empathy that they're probably missing in a lot of places in their life that can be really healing. And I think no matter what school of thought you're coming from, what theory you're using, what techniques you're using, that common factor is something we do really well. Hmm. I would go so far as to say, if you can't do that well, you need to find a different profession. Get out of the field. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Because if I, I, there are therapists that don't have it and they do damage. They should yeah. not be doing what we're doing. It's an absolute fundamental necessary ability. And I found myself. So, so when I was working with these, um, you know, essentially juvenile delinquents uh, in a detention center. There was this little girl, I'll never forget her, teeny tiny Polynesian girl um, who had just a horrific abuse history. Her trauma list was just heartbreaking. Yeah. And she developed, as you would expect, a horribly abused little human being to develop. She was essentially a feral child. Like she grew up on, like she grew up, Lord of the Flies style, right? Oh, yeah. And she behaved exactly how you would think she would behave. Right. Very, very hedonistic. If yeah. she wanted it, she'll she'd take it. If she didn't want it, she'd punch you in the she'd try to punch you in the face. Yeah. Um just a wild child. And yeah. she broke my heart. Um yeah. But only half as often as she tried to physically break my body. She would physically right. attack me all the time, even though she weighed 80 pounds. Yeah. Um, and I could just carry her around like a duffel bag. Um, <laughs> yeah. But she would always try to fight me. Yeah. And what I found was when I was working with her as a professional, I could turn that personal consideration off. Yeah. I didn't care how she treated me two days ago. 
if it was time for us to all get bundled up and go down to lunch, that was my job. My job was to help her get food. That's a yeah. legitimate thing for her to need. And yeah. the fact that she tried to um, that she tried to stab me with the pencil two days ago has nothing to do with the fact that she now needs food. Yeah. I didn't realize I was doing that until I worked with the sex offenders mm-hmm. and had to take them down to lunch. You got it. Because I could feel it. I could feel this aversion. Like, why do you guys deserve to have a free meal? And like, it was yeah. all there in the background of my mind. And I turned it off. Yep. Like, that has no bearing on anything that I'm doing right now. I am yep. not these guys' judge or jury. Yep. I'm walking them down to lunch. Yep. Period. Yep. And if you can't do that, if you have to be a justice warrior all the time for whatever cause, mm-hmm. you're going to really flame out hard as a therapist and probably do some damage on your way out. Like exactly. You said. Yeah. 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 And, you know, you bring up a good point that I think, obviously, you know, I, I think my route was a good route. But um, there's something to be said for challenging yourself to work with a population for whom you think you can't have empathy. Uh-huh. And seeing if you can, um, because you can learn a lot about your capacity for empathy by working with that type of population. I know I did. What do you think about the idea of needing to recuse yourself from a cert- from working with a certain population? Right. So, so, so do you think as a therapist that that should just be standard course that if you are a victim of sexual assault in your own life, that you should kind of draw a line at working with uh, sexual assaulters um, because it's too personal to you? Or do you feel like a therapist should be able to wall that off and bring unconditional positive regard to anyone who comes seeking treatment? How do you finesse that crisis? Yeah, it's, I think it's somewhere in between. I think you're cheating yourself and the client if you make a hard line. Unless unless that hard line is really like I have damage here that I cannot be objective with this person and my work with them is going to harm them. Yeah. And I, I think that that's such a personal call. I would hope that you case-by-case basis then you do like a global boundary um but it you can't go work with sex offenders and do it on a case-by-case basis (laughs) like right you got to do it or you don't or you don't right um but in private practice i would hope that or, or in any other you know voluntary setting i would hope that you you could at least be open to trying because your own personal issues with whatever that person's bringing into the room could make you a really powerful healer for them. It could make you the exact right person. Exactly. Yep. I I had a conversation with a brand new therapist a while back. And while she was going through grad school, one of her professors gave them an assignment to write a paper on the subset of the population that they would not be able to work with. Interesting. And she came to me kind of like having this, you know, ethical crisis where she's like, should I have a population I can't work with? What if, what if my answer is I feel like I could work with everybody? Yeah. Right. 
And so I, I, I can't remember exactly what I said to her, but I was like, A, that might be a trick question. Your professor might be trying to, right. trying to draw out some hubris. Yeah. Um, B, your professor might be on their own, you know, righteous path trying yeah. to drive a point home. So write the paper your professor's going to grade well, right? right? Unfortunately, that's the truth about academia that nobody wants to admit. Yeah. You have to write for your audience. And in, in college, you're writing for your professor. But I told her, I was like, I don't think that's really ethical for me as a professional to carry, to harbor a place in my mind, a category mm -hmm. of, of sacrosanct, inviolate boundary. I don't either. Right? If I, I don't know who's going to come in the door. And I have no idea what their background is. Right. And I've had it happen that I'd be, I'll be five, six sessions into working with somebody and then I'll find out that they're transgender mm -hmm. or I'll be 15 sessions into working with somebody and then I'll find out that they're bisexual or polyamorous or whatever, yeah. right? Or that they were raised by drug dealers or that yeah. they are currently a drug dealer or whatever, right? Yeah. All the, yeah. anything yeah. that might violate my expectation of what right. quote unquote should yeah. be the, behavior that I would expect. Yeah. If I held on to this idea that there are people I cannot work with, then what I'm really saying is I cannot work with people. I think so too. Cause you're, if, if you're treating like this global category of folks as being unempathyable, mm -hmm. <laughs> Definitely not a word. So um, it is now. <laughs> but you're tracking. Um, then I feel like if, if you can do that with a group of humans, can you really have empathy for humans? Right. Because sometimes people are going to have stuff that you, yeah, you just don't know. And, and it's that, it's that, you know, truth that, there's more heterogeneity within a group than there is between groups. Of course. Yeah. You know, I find that to be one of the most delicious things about being a therapist uh -huh. is to have somebody who sits down across from me, who is maybe the living antithesis, the other there you go. Go. the living antithesis of my own personal values yep. and have them never know that. Exactly. Because right. they don't, need to know that there's no value in me saying, Ooh, you're icky boo. Go away. Right. right? There's no value there. I'm no. not served by it. They're not served by it. All I would no. be doing is making the world a poorer place. Yeah. But if my living antithetical opposite, my kryptonite sat down in a chair opposite from me and I could take whatever they had to say repackage it for them, reflect themselves back to them in a way that they can learn and grow from it. And they leave my office 12 sessions later thinking, wow, they really helped me. Yeah. They don't need to know right. what my personal values are because that's not why they're talking to me. Exactly. They're not coming to me for advice. They're yeah. not coming to me to be told how to live. Right. They're coming to me to help find out how they can live better than they currently are as mm -hmm. they see it, right. As defined by them. As they see it. Exactly. And you know, I, I love that. I find that really thrilling and rewarding about the field that I can work with people for months yep. and 
they will think I am whoever they need to think I am. Yeah. And they'll know almost nothing at all about me except that they like talking to me. Right. Um, that's I, I find that thrilling. And then every once every once in a while, it's been very rare, but in the military, you know, it's a super small world. I'll bump into somebody as a civilian, right, out in the world, and you know, they'll see me with a wife and kids. Yeah. And yeah. They'll have, they will have had no idea that I have a wife and kids because they're talking about their divorce and how they hate all right. women and how they can't be trusted and how, you know, whatever. And they, and, and it's this weird, you get this weird kind of, I don't know if you've ever, if this has ever happened to you, but you, you can almost see like the film playing back in their eyes. Like what? Yeah. How, how can this guy be, you know, whatever white picket yeah. fence America? Yeah. When I was talking with him about, you know, growing up in a gang and all this stuff, like, <laughs> oh like he, he got it. He understood. <laughs> and then like, right. yeah, no, nah, man, I, I didn't grow up in a gang. I, I grew up in suburban, you know, <laughs> Salt Lake City of all places. Um, yeah. but it's, it's, I, I love that. And I, I think that's, for me, that's almost like a, like a, a recreational element of the very serious work that we do where I know I'm doing my job really well. If the client has no idea what my values are. Yeah. Except for what they can see reflected back to them, which is unconditional positive regard. Exactly. Right. And and you said that Carl Rogers would take issue with what you said, but I don't think he would. He would yeah, he wouldn't. Right? I mean I Carl Rogers it. was the master of this. Yeah. Yep. And he I heard an interview with him, oh, this was back when I was in masters, uh uh in grad school, where he said unconditional positive regard is not about approval. Right. In fact, it's approval agnostic mm -hmm. so that the person you have unconditional positive regard for has no idea whether you approve of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Your positive regard for them is approval agnostic. It doesn't depend on your approval. You will treat them well regardless. Yeah. And that that is you know, and he, one, of, one of my other favorite Rogerian maxims is that unconditional positive regard is necessary and sufficient for right. growth. Right. Eh, okay. Whether it's sufficient or not, I don't know. Maybe sufficient but not efficient, right? You can be right. in therapy for years and years and years before you start getting growth out of just unconditional positive regard. But right. sometimes the alchemy that happens, the magic of therapy, comes from a person being able to sit down with the client who doesn't get the heebie-jeebies when the client talks about all the bad, hairy, the nasty, ugly, ugly stuff they've been through, right? Exactly. Yeah. Or that they've done. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, we see that working with military populations like all the time. Moral injury is a thing, man. And yeah. if someone can sit down across from another person that that can accept them for the entire package, good, bad, and ugly. There's a lot of healing that comes from that. Yeah. Just that acceptance, right? Exactly. That yep. is so massively powerful. And then all of the stuff that we do, all of the skills, the yeah. the certified therapies that we do on top of that, that's unconditional positive regard is to therapy what a good bedside manner is to medicine. Exactly. Right. Right. Yep. Maybe even more that's so. The condition. Right. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're coming up on an hour together, Amy, and I want to respect your time. But I want to ask you one final question. Um, okay. If you could sit um, kind of armchair to armchair with a with a brand new therapist, maybe somebody who's 
deciding to major in psychology or considering changing fields to become a therapist and they're just starting out, what, what would your guidance be to the therapy neophyte? Be open. Uh, don't get your sights set on some super niche specialty too soon. Um, get as many experiences as you can. Be open to just being a generalist. There's nothing wrong with that. I know it's unsexy, you're, <laughs> you know, but you learn so much from that variety of experiences about people and about who you are as a therapist that you're going to be better off than later deciding what your niche is. So just be curious, be open, try things out. Even if you think it's like, I don't want to do that, <laughs> then maybe think about it as a little bit of exposure therapy. Like, well, then maybe that is the way. What is is it Cicero that said the, the obstacle is the way or something like that? Like, try it. I love that. I love that. And, I, you know, when I think when I think back to my own career, one of the things I really find that is lacking is a lot of actual guidance from actual therapists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I had an idea of what therapy might be like because I, like you, was the guy who spent like – um, one of my one of my favorite memories from adolescence was uh, I came home on a Friday after hanging out with some friends, and there was this girl that I was hanging out with, and she drove me home, and we sat out in front of my house in her car. Uh-huh. Um, her car was pulled up in front of my house by eleven o'clock. Yeah. But we were sitting out in her car until two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Oh my God! So many nights like that. And and. All of the stereotypical assumptions would have been that me and her yeah. were making out, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Because the windows were all fogged up just from the breath of our talking. Yeah. But she and I just talked, like yeah. legit deep talking. Yeah. For how, how three or four hours into the yeah. middle of the night. Yeah. Until I was like, I'm sorry, I got to go to, I got to go inside. My mom's going to be pissed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that happened so often. After that, I remember that first time because it felt so alien, but yeah. it felt so right. Yeah. It, it was like I had come to a new place that felt like home. Yeah. And I just wanted to keep going back there and having meaningful conversations and deep yeah. kind of soul-searching discussions. Um, and, you know, that's that was the moment when I realized, like, I, I need to find a way to do this, to have yeah. this kind of connection because this matters to me. Yeah. Um, you know, more than even making out matter to me. And at that yeah. point in my life, that was, that was saying something. Um, I was going to say for a teenager, I feel you though. <laughs> I had the same, same feeling. I would have rather just like really deeply, intimately, cognitively and intellectually connected with somebody yeah. than I would have anything physical. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, it was one-to-one. -one. It was, it was, it was, it was a dead heat. But well, yeah, boys, girls, that was, you know. that was the surprise. Like anything is as high up there to me <laughs> as, as making out. That's Whoa, gotta be, that's, be that's a big, a big deal. deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, um, Amy, thank you so much for, for taking an hour to, to chat with me and to, and to share your insights. Um, My honor. I'm, I'm glad you asked. It's fun. It's fun to get to reflect on our careers like this. Absolutely. And I, my hope is, 
that once this goes out into, you know, podcast landia, that, um, you know, somebody will come across it and find it as a resource for, you know, real candid feedback on what they might be considering to do with their life or what they've just started on the journey of, of yeah. trying to do with their life. Um, because again, if we stay cuckoo clocks for the rest of, you know, our, our profession's trajectory, there's yeah. not going to be a lot of chance to compare notes with other people. So hopefully this can be a place. Awesome. You're doing, you're doing good work. <laughs> Necessary work. Well, I'm mainly, I'm just doing it for fun. Well, um, that, that's a good bonus. Yeah. If somebody else can benefit from my fun, then that is a wonderful coming Absolutely. together of what was that? Kismet? What is that? Um, there you go. Yeah. yeah kismet. Serendipity? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, Amy. Well, um, again, like I said, thank you very much for, for spending the time. Um, and, uh, and just to, to wind it down, um, this has been Amy Dreyer, PhD, uh, joining me uh, for one more episode of One More Think. As always, I'm Dan Roberts. Let's take care of each other. Mm-hmm.